0: Well, it's time again for another episode of the Humble Perspectives podcast with your host Steve Humble. As we began to emerge from the valley of shadow of Elijah's death, life began to take on a new normal. Even though the health issues I started to deal with went on for 15 years and we're just getting started. That. uh, new normal included expanding our relationships and walking with new friends. There was new normal in the family too as our daughters began to take new steps and we took some new steps in the church. Therefore chapter 26 is titled New Paths even though the changes were not so much of a change in direction as a change in focus. So I'll just begin to read. Chapter 26 New Paths There is simply no better image of the years following Elijah's death other than to think of them as that time of walking through the valley of the long shadow of death. As as is true of things that are in the shadows, many details about those years are fuzzy in my memory. Some, however, stick out boldly. Attending a regional meeting of a group called the Fellowship of Christian Leaders, which was held in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, in October 1996, is one such sharp memory. My friend Bill Livingston was becoming more involved with Dennis Peacock, who I talked about before. Dennis, of course, had made an impact on my life with his message to Lexington Covenant in 1990, and his influence continued through the intern program, which I participated in with my son and two other young men. I decided to go with Bill, partly to see Dennis and meet some of the leaders who were working with him, but mostly just to be with Bill and to have some face-to-face fellowship in that lonely, lonely season. To my pleasant surprise, Ted Sandquist and his wife Dawn were among the people in Hopkinsville, I would never met Ted but had loved his music and profited from cassette tapes of his teaching on worship. He had been a longtime elder in Covenant Love Church up in New York since the 1970s when the community was known as Love Inn, I-N-N, a community of Jesus freaks led by Scott Ross, a DJ who had the long-running Scott Ross Show. In those meetings, Dennis' theme in teaching was building with sons. Three months after Elijah's death, it was excruciating to listen to that talk. While I clearly understood that Dennis was primarily talking about spiritual sons, sons in the kingdom, he and Ted and some others in that room were also very definitely working with their own physical sons who had become spiritual sons. But my son was dead. My hopes and dreams of working with him had been smashed. Still, it was not all bad. It gave me another opportunity to trust God, to entrust Elijah to God, and to take a posture of worship. Out of that posture came a freshened and strengthened resolve to invest in younger people, in part as my tribute to Elijah, as I said in the last chapter. Especially in the first months after Elijah died, the people of our church, as well as many in our spiritual family who were not part of our local fellowship, walked with us in the grief. For a season, many of them seemed to feel the loss nearly as deeply as we did, but not for such a long time as us, I think, which seems only natural. Most of them have seemed very aware that our journey would be a long one and were patient and supportive even after their lives had moved past that season. There were some others who did not appear to understand about the length of our painful journey. How could they be expected to understand unless they had experienced such a loss themselves or had been close to someone who had? A few seemed to lose patience after months rolled by and a very few even said things that demonstrated their lack of understanding and their impatience. For the first month or two, the sermons I printed presented in our church were mostly sharing from my heart thoughts that were the direct outcome of trying to deal with my own grief. I remember, for example, sharing one Sunday in August from James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Obviously, the message was for me, perhaps more for me than anyone, as may be seen in the wrestlings that I described before. That directive and promise from Scripture continue to work in me for months afterward. I remember, mostly because I have sermon notes saved from that period, that I taught a series on covenant that fall. There's some good material in those notes, and I certainly desired to feed God's flock from the Scripture. Some of that material probably would still be worth developing into something to share with others. However, I suspect that at the time, I was in part turning to a theological study as one of the ways of trying to get relief from the grief. Not long afterward, I began to preach about the kingdom of God and what it meant to be rebuilders, to be a people who are giving themselves to seeing God's will done on earth as it is in heaven, starting in their own lives, in their own families, in the church, but also extending that work into whatever sphere of influence they had been given at their workplace, and in whatever social groups in which they were involved. Certainly I believe that, and I still do. But in some ways, studying and thinking and teaching about it then was, in part, my way of surviving and of holding on to hope for the future. In those years, I laid aside most of my efforts to clarify the vision and to establish the best structure for our church community. Well, those were still concerns, certainly, but they weren't a big focus. Supporting one another and encouraging one another, even simply holding on to one another, I believe, was something of an accomplishment. Yet it was more than a simple accomplishment, I think, in that that's not a bad representation of the heart of what Jesus wants to see. His people living by his new commandment and living toward the fulfillment of his prayer as our primary witness to the world around us. John 13:34 to 35 He said a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another by all this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another and then in his what's often called his high priestly prayer in John 17:18 to 23 He prayed, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you love me." During that period, I did produce a document titled, The Covenant Ideal of Winchester Covenant Church, which the elders discussed and adjusted. That document begins with another statement of our vision and then is organized around the commandment to live in covenant love by living out nine values, each of which is listed along with scripture references to supporting passages in the Bible. The nine values are these. To be a worshiping people. To be a humble people. To be a serving people to be servant rulers, to be a faithful people, to be a people of peace, to live in community, to be a people who share the good news of God's kingdom, and to be a mission-oriented people. If we who follow Jesus were even to come close to being that kind of people, what a community we would be. Any progress at all we have made in that direction has only been by God's grace and has been altogether worthwhile. I can only hope some people were helped through my efforts to serve the Lord in those difficult days. Simply because God is the person God is, some probably were helped. It's God's way to use weak and broken people as channels of His life for others. After all, What other kind of people are there for him to use when we get down and look at it in reality? But the most life comes through people who know and admit their weakness, but still offer themselves freely to God. Second Corinthians is one of the clearest descriptions of God working that way in the Apostle Paul's life, and it had long been one of my favorite books in the Bible. In those days, I got to practice that way of life, in spades and trust the Lord to make good of it like He said He would. It has never been a goal for Winchester Covenant to own a church building or to be a church providing for people's needs through programs of one kind or another. Our primary goals have always been to be disciples, to make disciples, and to build strong families who fellowship and work and serve together as a community of disciples. After five years of meeting for Sunday worship in our home, I came to the conviction that it was time for us to gather in a more public, visible way as a part of our testimony. On the first Thursday in May, 1999, the annual National Day of Prayer, during my own prayer time, out of the blue, as it were, another of those rare pictures appeared in my mind. I saw a storefront in the downtown area with a sign identifying it as the meeting place. It didn't look churchy at all. Immediately I I, I thought such a place could be a gathering place for people in the downtown area and that we could even make it a place to which people could bring their sack lunch and have Bible studies or other gatherings. After I shared this vision, if it was a vision, with the elders, and after we gave it due consideration, we decided to look for a suitable place to meet, preferably in downtown Winchester. We asked our people to keep their eyes open for a possible site. A few weeks later, one of the women in our church suggested a place on East Broadway Street just around the corner from the central downtown area on Main Street. When I drove by and looked in the window, I could see that the space had been divided into several rooms for offices. That will not do at all, I thought. The sister was persistent, though, and brought it up again. This time she told me who owned the building, where the place was located, and she gave me the phone number to contact him. I drove by again. This time it struck me that next door there was a place called A Taste of Jazz, a banquet room associated with The Jazz Man, a popular downtown restaurant. Now, that room would be big enough for Sunday meetings if the space were for rent, I thought. But it's not. A week or two later, on a Friday, our friends Dennis and Sheila Cole came down from northern Kentucky for an overnight visit. On Saturday morning, Dennis and I went for a ride during which I showed him around our county. As we passed through downtown, and we happened to be driving by the rooms on East Broadway, I offhandedly commented, those rooms are for rent and might be a good place for our church office. For two cents, I would talk to the owners of Jazzman about renting their banquet room to us on Sundays. About an hour and a half later, Dennis said, "Sheila Sheila and I would like to take you and Patricia out to lunch at the Jazzman. We agreed to that quickly enough. Jazzman was one of our favorite local spots to eat. After we had been seated at our table, been given our drinks, and ordered our meal, Dennis said, Well, are you going to talk to them, or am I? Huh? It took me a few seconds to recall my earlier comment about renting the banquet room, but when I did, I replied, I'll do it. I walked over to Paulette, who with her husband James, owned the restaurant, and I asked her if they would consider renting the banquet room to our church on Sunday mornings. Somewhat to my surprise, even then, Paulette quickly answered, I think we probably would. James is not here today. Why don't you stop by on Monday afternoon and ask him about it? After lunch, the four of us walked around the corner and across the street. The huge windows across the front of the banquet room were covered halfway up with black curtains, but we saw that there was a ledge below the windows on which we could stand and look in. As we approached, I looked up and noticed the words stenciled in the upper right-hand corner of the first window. A taste of jazz in big letters, and below them, in smaller letters, I read banquet room and meeting place. The meeting place? No. It wasn't the same front I'd seen in my mind three months earlier, but there were the words. That was confirmation enough for me. There was no surprise when James Baker immediately agreed to rent us a taste of jazz on Sundays and for only $30 a week. By that time, some of us had gone through the rooms in the space next door. There were five rooms. Some repair was needed, but nothing major. With some repairs, some painting, and a thorough cleaning, we had an office, a conference room, rooms for children's ministry, and a restroom, all for a very reasonable monthly rent. We met there for a year and it served us well. The taste of jazz was decorated with painted scenes of the French Quarter in New Orleans. One of the pictures, a large one in the center of an end wall, appeared to be a lady of the night and she was not wearing church clothes, not even those of an informal church like ours. So each Sunday we hung a banner with a symbol of the kingdom over her and we faced the chairs to the other end of the room. In this way, we protected young men, and older ones too, from any temptation that might have arisen. It was great on Sundays to pull back those curtains. Not only did it let lots of light in, but it made our worship quite visible to passers-by. It was actually fun to open the door on warm days and allow the sound of our praises and messages go out into the streets. With a growing number of teens among us and the door wide open, we would often heartily sing out the call to proclaim the good news, as in the song by the group called Delirious. Men of faith, rise up and sing of the great and glorious King. You are strong when you feel weak in your brokenness, complete. Shout to the north and the south, sing to the east and the west. Jesus is Savior to all, Lord of heaven and earth from the song shout to north by Martin Smith. We met in those rooms for about a year. Marion Engelbrecht who had played piano for us in the first months when we had Sunday services back at the elementary school years before was at the time attending a church that met in an old building about a block and a half away from us on the corner of Buckner and Broadway. She came to the conviction that the Lord was directing her to invite my wife and me to her house in order to have dinner with her family and with the pastor of that church, Jesse Acosta, and his wife. We enjoyed our time with the Acostas, but we didn't become close friends. A month or two later, though, Jesse urged me to visit them during some special revival services. Wanting to be polite, I went to a Sunday evening service. A crazy thought hit me as I was walking into that building for the first time. Ask him to give you this building. Well, I tried to squash that thought immediately. After all, we weren't looking for a building. We didn't even want a building. The thought kept intruding into my mind throughout the service till I began to think, how would I ask him for such a thing even if I wanted to? After the service, Jesse was at the door shaking hands with people as they left. I approached the door somewhat uneasily, wondering what to say. Before I could say anything to him, he said to me, I have to talk with you. We set a time to talk at my office one afternoon the following week. The time came. Jesse came into the office and sat down. And after we agreed to one another, he said, the Lord told me you're supposed to have our building. Our group is merging with the church in Richmond, Kentucky, and we'll be having our services in their building. If you're interested, I will talk to the landlady. I'm sure she'll want to rent to you. Well, let me talk to our elders, I replied, and I'll get back to you. The bottom line is that we moved into the building a few weeks later. It was an old building that had once been a house and a service station then a grocery, then a laundromat. We became the third church to meet there. The building needed work. We did what we could to make it presentable and usable for our needs, and we met there for four years. To top it off, one day after I had set up my office in that building, I walked up Broadway toward Main Street to pick up something at a shop. As I started past the taste of jazz, I noticed a man painting a sign on the window of a little bar across the street. The man with his long hair and long beard looked like a cross between an old hippie and a motorcycle gang member. On a whim, I crossed the street and began to talk with him while looking at the painting he was doing. That's not bad, I thought. Would you like to come by the building where our church meets and give me a price for doing some painting on our window and on a sign out front, I asked spontaneously. Sure, he responded, I'll come by later this afternoon. He did. I describe what I'd like to have painted. In the window at the front corner of the building, which is approximately four feet by four feet, i said say what I'd like to have the words, the meeting place, in big letters, curved around a picture of a loaf of bread, broken in half, with stalks of wheat and some wheat seeds lying between the halves. Immediately below the picture I wanted to name the name Winchester Covenant Church in smaller letters, and below that our motto, Building for the Generations to Come. On the sign, which was mounted on a pole between 15 and 20 feet high, I wanted to have the words The Meeting Place, along with the picture of the broken bread, wheat stalks, and seeds. Could you design something like that and paint it? If so, what would you charge, I asked. Well, let me sketch something out and I'll show it to you and give you a price, he answered. A few days later he came back with sketches of the two signs. That's it, I exclaimed. How much would you charge? How about $225? Let's do it, I agreed quickly. And within a week or two, there was a building and a sign that was quite reminiscent of the picture I would seen in my mind that morning in May 1999. Our building never became a drop-in place, as I had hoped it would. It did not become a place where downtown groups would get together or have meetings or Bible studies. My desire to see us become effective in reaching out to unchurched people was not fulfilled, and has not been fulfilled to this day. There was one exception. A homeless man named James quite often stopped by for a cup of coffee. He told me the first time we met he was usually called hammer because at some time or another he threatened to hit someone with a hammer. I had several opportunities to talk with James about Jesus, including one when he was in jail because he had accidentally set an old empty shed in someone's backyard on fire. He had gone into the shed to escape the cold and had tried to cook over a charcoal fire when the shed itself began to burn. James was taken on to prison and I've never seen him since. I do pray that some seed of the good news has taken root in him. I learned later that there were city leaders such as the lawyer who was then mayor who were watching us, taking note of the healthy families among us and our willingness to serve. That season seemed to give us a place in the city. Not a prominent place, but we did gain some respect. On one occasion, the mayor even told me that he believed that having our church meet near the downtown area was a positive thing for the community. I probably should have asked him why, but I'm usually not quick on my feet in, regarding, in responding to such unexpected statements. I do believe that our somewhat odd and seemingly disorganized church community has offered a needed picture of a church that is not all about buildings and programs, but of one that is instead a people committed to follow Jesus together as a way of life. Perhaps we have been at least a shadow of the life of the church that we glimpsed in the New Testament. Shortly before Elijah's death, I had began to look to Bill Livingston for personal pastoral care, following Paul Petrie's return to Belgium. Bill and I were part of a group of leaders, so we had that was called the Association of Covenant Ministries, ACM, since its formation in the early 1990s. All of this group were associated with Paul Petrie and his friend Robert Grant. Bill, however, had begun to connect more and more with the leaders in the Fellowship of Christian Leaders, FCL for short, which Dennis Peacock led. These two groups were two among several that began in the years after the new wine teachers had decided not to keep working together. The various groups were not splinter groups from an organization that had broken apart since there had been no organization as such. The discipleship or shepherding movement had been a large network of relationships held together by brotherhood and pastoral care given and received. The names of these new groups were new and some were more organized than others, but the relationships at the heart of them had decades-long roots. Each group had its distinguishing characteristics reflective of the personalities and callings of those involved. FCL had been formed by Dennis Peacock, Ted Sanquist, and some other men who continued in the regular fellowship of friends after Bob Mumford, to whom we had looked for pastoral oversight, repented for his involvement in the shepherding movement. After a few years, they had sensed the leading of the Lord to invite others into their fellowship. Some of those who began fellowship with them had similar histories in the shepherding movement. Others did not, but all had been gripped with a desire for the kingdom of God. I had come into contact with some of these brothers through my involvement in the interim program. I had met some others at the meeting in Hopkinsville in October 1996. My friendship with Bill opened the door to more fellowship. A few months after the Hopkinsville's gathering, my wife and I, along with Bill and his wife Barbara, traveled to Vincennes, Indiana, where we spent several hours fellowshipping in the home of Bryce and Bobby Anderson. The couple from the church in Hopkinsville that had hosted October meeting were there also. Bryce and Bobby soon became special friends. After I had attended a few more meetings with FCL people, Dennis Peacock invited me to participate in a week-long gathering that they called the Builders School, held at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh during July 1998. Dennis asked me to prepare a paper about the sovereignty of God to present during the school. However, I wrote only a short informal paper, and did not expect to read it at the Pittsburgh gathering after having a conversation with Ted Sandquist, who told me that since I was not actually a member of the group, Dennis should not have invited me to present a paper. As it turned out, I did present the paper, but that's a different story. That conversation with Ted was significant and memorable for a very different reason. In late May 1998, Ted was going to pass through Winchester while on a trip. He called and asked if we could meet for lunch at a Winchester restaurant. Therefore, a couple hours later, I met him at El Rio Grande. It was the first time the two of us had been together for a personal conversation. It was an enjoyable opportunity to get better acquainted. In the course of sharing some of my story, I mentioned the close ties that I had maintained with David Reddish, John Meadows, Billy Henderson, and other church leaders in Lexington, with whom I had prayed weekly for many years. At that time, we were spending a good deal of time and energy trying to help one of the men who was going through a difficult time. Ted began to encourage, or perhaps exhort me, to untangle from my history in Lexington, and to give myself more fully to building relationships in Winchester and to take opportunities to serve the local community. Just as Ted finished what he was saying, a man neither of us knew and who had been eating at a table across the room came up to our table. I'm Dr. Mark Miller, he stated. Looking straight at me, he went on, I don't know what this man is saying to you, but the Lord wants you to know. That what he is saying is from the Lord. Well, that certainly got my attention and led me to keep on pondering Ted's exhortation later. I became convinced that Ted had been speaking as the Lord's representative. My friendships with brothers in Lexington are still important, but my focus turned into our local community in a new way. Interestingly enough, 10 years later, I became personally acquainted with Dr. Miller and now he's a friend and regularly gives me chiropractic care. Later in 1998, I became a member of FCL after seeking discernment and agreement from my fellow elders and the people of our church community. A year or two later, Dennis Cole also joined FCL and for a while our three churches, along with the church Bryce led in Vincennes, became one of the regional groupings within that network. One blessing that has come from relating with brothers and sisters in FCL, which was later renamed Kingdom Ministries International, has been an emphasis on generational transfer. That emphasis on sharing the journey from generation to generation and working together with brothers from multiple generations, of course, struck a chord within my own heart. I would make this comment. KMI still exists, Kingdom Ministries International, as some sort of international fellowship of leaders who lead groups of leaders. However, KMI itself has multiplied into several groups based on geography. Those of us in the United States are now called Kingdom Ministries USA. Life continued for our family, of course. A few months after Elijah died, a young man whom Jenny had known at Berea, before Elijah had even entered the college, moved back into the area. The two of them began to see one another and they were married in January of 1998. They now have three sons and live in Tennessee. Stephanie continued at Berea College for two more years. Like Elijah, she had begun working summers at Clark Rural Electric in the summer of 1996 following her freshman year at Berea. She continued working there in the summers the next two years and then took a full-time job with the electric co-op. Rather than finish college, she decided to work full-time in order to save money in preparation for her marriage to Daniel Loveland, who would still have a couple years of college studies to complete after they were married in December 1999. In the fall of 2000, they presented us with our first grandchild, Elijah Wolf Loveland, his first name in honor of his uncle. Andrea graduated from Mars Hill in 2000. After working full-time for a year at Reese Office Products, she entered Morehead College for the fall semester in 2002 and graduated in December 2005. Like Elijah and Stephanie before her, she spent her college summers working for Clark Rural Electric Cooperative. In June of 2005, she married Daniel Rake. I think it was in 2002 that I began to work for Reese Office Products again, this time as a salesperson. It was my job to go out into towns in several surrounding counties to take sales orders from some established customers and to seek to establish new accounts. I was motivated in some ways by that old desire to be a Christian ministering, in other words serving, in the everyday world rather than to be simply in the ministry, as it is generally understood in our culture. I wanted to have opportunities to meet and serve people outside the church. Looking back, I wonder if this was also an effort to step outside the routine, something of a new beginning as I was coming out of the valley of the shadow. My early efforts did pay off in some increased sales for the company, but after a time of training in which I had an hourly wage, I went on straight commission, and it soon became clear that sales was not my calling. In spite of a great deal of effort, I never was able to have much success at establishing new accounts, which was neither good for the company nor for me in terms of income. Ironically, The biggest account I I had a hand in gaining for Reese Office Products was actually landed by Rick Beach after I quit in early 2006. That account proved a great blessing for the company during difficult financial time that started in 2008. Beyond that, even though my earnings were not large, the period during which I worked for Rick and Margie Beach did indeed help me get a new start in engaging the world beyond grief, more fully again. Okay, now we're set up to engage the final two chapters in my book. The focus will shift back to the interchanges and growth in my walk with the Lord. The point of the spiritual journey is to come into a fuller knowledge of God. Not knowing about God as much as knowing Him more intimately. And it's about being transformed by the Holy Spirit into conformity with Christ. Hopefully, that transformation is becoming even more real as the years roll on. So, more about that next time. The Lord be with you all.